you uh, probably have had the experience where you had a, a book or a, a movie that was very familiar to you, that you have gone back to many times, and despite how familiar you are with that, something jumps out at you uh, when you read it again or you watch it again, you say, oh, I, I didn't see that before, or I didn't realize that before. You have those aha moments, you know, where something clicks. And certainly, I think that that can be and hopefully will be true as we look together into what is easily uh, one of the most famous and familiar, if not the most familiar stories that our Savior, the Lord Jesus, told. And it's found in Luke 15. And this particular story is actually the third story in a trilogy that directly addressed the Pharisees and the scribes and their complaining and their annoyance at Jesus because of his fellowship with what they deemed unclean sinners, tax collectors, the scum. And they were the ones that were coming to Jesus. They were the ones that were gathering around him. They were the ones that found in him everything they were looking for. But they didn't like that, the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law. So Luke 15 actually begins by saying all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes, boo, The Pharisees and scribes were complaining, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Verse 3 tells us, So he told them this parable. Then he he tells them a parable of the lost sheep. Then right after that, he goes into the parable of the lost coin. And then to conclude this trilogy of making some very important points about what the kingdom of heaven is really all about, what it's really like, and who it's really for, he gives what is commonly called, in verse 11 as it starts, the parable of the lost son, or or the prodigal son, even more familiar. The prodigal son. And that's probably what you know it as, and what you refer to it as, the prodigal son. And the thing is, it's so famous and so familiar, and the concepts are so universally at least understood on the surface that you don't even have to be a believer or somebody that's been in church a long time to know a little bit, even basically, about the prodigal son. And that's used even in culture. It's referred to. It's used as an example, right? The prodigal son, pretty familiar statement, pretty familiar concept. The thing is, much like one of the best movies of all time, one of my favorites, one of those that I go back to and still find something, you know, that I missed, The Princess Bride, much like the horrible, total jerk of a boss, Vizzini, who constantly says to everything, inconceivable. There's this part in the movie where Inigo Montoya just has enough, and he looks at Vizzini and he says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means, in referencing that word inconceivable that he always uses. And I just want to suggest to you the same 
is true of, of this particular story, and specifically that word that's associated with this story, prodigal, prodigal. We keep using that word, but I, I do not think it means what we think it means, prodigal. So here's what prodigal actually means in terms of, of a, a couple definitions. One, prodigal means reckless extravagance. Reckless extravagance, wasteful. Secondly, uh, a definition that equally works and fits is lavish giving. Uh, giving unsparingly, you know, holding nothing back. Holding nothing back. So with that in mind, let's dig in to this most famous of parables, and let's set aside what we think we know, and let's just dig into this together to mine the truths that are in this incredible story uh, that I really do believe Jesus wants all of his followers in every age to uncover. So let's do that together. Luke 15, verse 11, says this. He also said, remember, this is the the third of a a series of stories. This is a trilogy, and this is the third one. So he, he just finished with the parable of the lost coin. He also said, Jesus said, a man had two sons. That's another detail that's important to keep in mind. It's not just about one son. A man had two sons. So you have three people, three characters in this story. The man, the father, and his two sons. And verse 12 says, the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Now, right away, verse 12 shows us a shocking Shocking insult. This is just astounding, the insult that this younger son gives. By him saying, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me, uh, it was the younger son saying to his father, he might as well have said this word for word, I wish you were already dead. You're not dead yet. You're very much alive, but I wish you were already dead so that I could get the inheritance that is promised to me that comes upon your death. And since you haven't died yet, you won't hurry up and die. I don't want to wait anymore. I'm tired of waiting. So just go ahead and give it to me since you're not going to die, obviously. And deeper than that, it's saying he's conveying to the Father, I just want what you can give me. I don't really want you. You don't really mean that much to me. It's your stuff. This would have been absolutely incredulous. And it's not just shocking for that time or just to the Jewish culture. Everyone in Middle Eastern society would be appalled at this son, and that includes even through today. That's That's just something that was never, ever done because considering the inheritance was tied to the time that the father the 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 owner of all of it the the patriarch of the family was tied to his death for a son to say to him i want that now 
everybody understood what that was conveying, and it was conveying those two things. There's a blog that I read a couple of years ago uh, where the author told this story to Muslim Syrian refugees. And he, he said this about that time where he read that story to them. He said, I didn't realize the story's power until I heard the gasps when they heard the son demanded his inheritance. Later, when, we, when he worked among the pigs, more gasps. And even more so at the end when the father showed such extravagant grace. What could this son have been thinking? I mean, what was he thinking to ask such a request? Well, Jesus doesn't tell us, and after all, this is not a a real person. This is a fictional story that Jesus is telling to prove a series of points, to make some very significant statements. So we're not told in this fictional account what was going through this the son's mind, or what was on his heart. But what we can be sure of would have been true if this person had been real, and and what would be true of, of any of us. And after all, the big point of this story along with the others, but especially this considering there's these characters that are so vivid that Jesus does such a good job of just really fleshing out and making it as if these were real people. I mean, you, you kind of forget that this is just a story. He makes them come alive so much. And what we need to do is to see ourselves in this story. We need to understand, as this son presents what being prodigal is, reckless, wasteful, we need to see the fact that we can very, very easily be the same. We need to say, I prodigal. I prodigal. We need to see ourselves in in this display. Because what was true of this fictional son, what had to be true, what had to be present in his heart to give him the audacity to say such a thing can, in fact, be true of us as well. And that's this. When you think back to the son's request... What he shows us, what he teaches us, and what we can learn is that when we love lesser things, we will love our Father less and doubt him more. When we love lesser things than God, which, I mean, is is just about anything other than him, right? Right? Anything other than him is a lesser thing. So when we love lesser things instead of him, more than him, even equal to the level of our love for him, then what inevitably will happen is we will love our Father less and less and less, and we will doubt him more and more and more. And if this son was a real son, that, that certainly would have been able to be seen in his life. Like, we would we'd be able to diagnose that. Oh, look where this happened. And, by the way, that doesn't happen just overnight out of nowhere. It's a slow build. It's little choices here and little choices there. Compromise here, compromise 
there. Letting an idol into your heart here and not dealing with it. And then another one over there and piling it on. That's why Jesus said another place as he was teaching, no man can serve what? Two masters. It's not going to work. He's going to love the one and hate the other. It's inevitable. And certainly, again, if this son were were living a real person, we would be able to see that in his life where along the way, he started loving other things, and, and really things are at the heart of the issue here with him. He started loving other things more than he loved his father. And as he loved his father less and less, he started doubting his father's goodness more and more. He started doubting whether his father really had his best at heart. Whether his father was really fair and just. Whether his father was really all that good to him. And somewhere along the way, he would have had to convince himself, nope. No, nope, my father really isn't that good. No, I really, I really can't benefit from him anymore. I just need to get what's coming to me and get out of here. I need to leave. I want to just start my own life independent of my father because he's just not the same that I thought he was. When we love lesser things, we will love our father less and doubt him more. Doubt that he's enough. What goes without saying in this this story is the father no longer was enough for this son. He wasn't enough for him. He was looking for things, for material things to fulfill him instead of being fulfilled by his relationship with his father. And friends, that is so easy to happen. And that is such a slippery, subtle slope where it doesn't take long at all for you and me to no longer find fulfillment in our Father. And so when that happens, if it's not dealt with right away, we will start to look for other things to fulfill us. Because human beings, us, we we always, always search for fulfillment. We're always doing that. We're always on a search for being full. But it's only going to be found one place. And that's our Father, the perfect Father. But when we start loving lesser things, that all shifts in our minds and we have a warped sense of what fulfillment really is all about. Like a, just like a kid that fills up on junk food. You know, you, you know what I'm talking about, parents. When you come in uh, to a room and you see your son or your daughter there and you see wrappers here and wrappers there and you say, how many did you eat? And they just give you that look like, I don't know how I'm supposed to answer this. I mean, and we just had the worst possible holiday, right? For that. And so, like a kid filling up on junk food, or like us when we're at a restaurant and, and we fill up on the unlimited breadsticks, or the Texas Roadhouse Rolls. You know what I'm talking about. It's made us what we are today, right? And so, you know, like when we're at that restaurant and we fill up on bread or appetizers, 
uh, before a delicious main course, we so often do the same thing spiritually. And when we feel spiritually empty, it's probably because we are full of ourselves and the world. So it's just like that kid sitting down eating all the candy, and then it's supper time. Oh, I'm not hungry. Why? Oh, wrapper here, wrapper there. And just like us at that restaurant where we, we just are so hungry, and we go in and we fill up on the appetizer, and then we're not hungry for that main course. It's so easy for us to do the same thing in our spiritual lives. It's so easy to say to God wrongly, God, where are you? Why don't I feel as close to you anymore, God? Why did you leave me? Wrong. Friends, if you feel distant from your father, it's you who moved. He didn't go anywhere because he never will. He never will. And so if you feel spiritually empty, which we all can, all right? No, I mean, we're all at some point in that boat, where we feel dry or empty or use whatever you want to describe it, that that spiritual lack. And when we feel that, as I said, it but it bears repeating, I really feel that most likely it's because we are full of ourselves, we're thinking too much of ourselves, we're living for self and the world around us. Now, still in verse 12, Still in verse 12, just as shocking as the son's request is the fact that the father granted it. Just as shocking. Because in this culture, and I can just imagine as as Jesus is telling this story to the audience that he was, and when the gasps subsided at the request... When the son said, give me my inheritance, give me what's coming to me, gasp. (gasps) And as that subsided, I, I hear the gasps again when the father didn't smack the son and tell him to get out of his sight and that he was no longer his son. That not only was he not going to get his inheritance, but he was no longer part of the family because that's what would have been expected. In that culture, and in the same culture today, in any of the Middle Eastern cultures, if a son was that unloving and uncaring and unrespectful, disrespectful to the father, then what he would expect is to be disowned and beaten and just completely cut off and viewed as, as dead. But that's not what happened. Verse 12 tells us, So he distributed the assets to them. It's another thing to notice that we often breeze past. Which son actually gave this incredibly irreverent, disrespectful request? It was the younger son, right? The older son wasn't there saying, yeah, me too, me too. But even though the older son was not there with the younger, the assets were still divided up among them. Among them, among both of them. The younger son, his inheritance would have been one-third. The older son, being older, the the firstborn, his share was two-thirds. 
And so this father just distributes the assets to both. And and so, I mean, that's just shocking. That would have been equally astounding to this audience. It never happened that way. It was never supposed to happen that way, but yet it did. And what that showed the audience, as Jesus tells this story, the character of the Father, it shows His humility and His extravagant, lavish, which is prodigal. That's what that means. That's literally the the definition of that. Extravagant, lavish, unsparing, prodigal. His prodigal grace and his mercy. That's what would have been on display here. So right away, you see two prodigals. You see the son who is reckless with his relationship with his father wasteful of what he has in his father, that, that love and, and compassion and wisdom that is in his father, he, he just wants to waste it all because he's just interested in what his father can give him. But you see this extravagant, lavish father, prodigal, on display as well. And again, this would have been not just one-third of all of the Father's resources, but all of it, because he split up the other two-thirds as well. So this would have been the Father's resources and livelihood. And literally, the word here is life. When we read property or assets there at the end of verse 12, that he, he distributed the assets or the property to them, that word literally is life. So it's the Father is actually giving up his life for his sons. It would have dramatically affected his own current prosperity. Because remember, that inheritance is, is only for when he's gone. And so while he's living, he continues to work toward having that inheritance to be what it should be. So, I mean, you, know, you, you work to build it, right? I mean, that, we understand that. That's how any inheritance works. So to, to do this this prematurely would have absolutely affected his own current prosperity, especially considering the older brother went ahead and, and had his inheritance too, his two-thirds share. Shocking, astounding, extravagant grace and mercy and humility in response to extravagant selfishness and arrogance. And then in verse 13, we're going to see this son, this younger son, adding insult to injury. Adding insult to injury. Verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. So what does the younger son do with the prodigal grace of the father, that extravagant, lavished grace and compassion and love and all that the son was so undeserving of, obviously? What is the son's response? Well, he does a very prodigal thing too, but in an entirely opposite, negative way. He wastes everything in the most foolish, disgraceful, sinful ways possible. Remember I said 
we uh, keep using this word and it does not mean what we think it means, prodigal. We, we tend to relegate prodigal to meaning wayward, you know, a runaway. And that's so often how it's used, even in society. But it always means reckless, wasteful, extravagant. We need to just keep that in mind. And that's what we see on display in this character of this story that Jesus is telling us. In response to the Father's generosity and goodness and grace, we see absolute foolishness and disgraceful, sinful living. Another astounding thing. Another shocking moment. Don't you just hear those gasps continuing? You see the look on their faces, their jaws just drop, their heads shaking. I can't believe this. Who would do such a thing? And humanly, naturally, it would be very easy for us to do the exact same thing. And probably we have done the exact same thing when you've had family members or friends or coworkers or neighbors or you've heard about other people's families or neighbors or coworkers who have done something just shocking and terrible and astounding and it's so easy to have our default reaction be you know we just shake our heads oh i cannot believe them how horrible of a person they are right but but we need to be very very careful not to immediately join the pharisees originally listening to the story Remember, they are the ones that Jesus is directly stating this story to. They were complaining. They were griping. They were judging and criticizing the fact that there were all these sinners, all these tax collectors and sinners around Jesus, and he eats with them. And so in direct response to that, Jesus tells this most shocking of stories. And we need to be careful that we don't join in with the Pharisees and the scribes as we hear this or any other example of a prodigal. And here's why we need to be careful. We need to be careful not to do that because we, we, all of us, we do the same exact thing with God's prodigal gift of grace and salvation when we take the life Jesus gave his life to give us and we choose to sin with it and live life for ourselves. We do the same thing as as unbelievable and shocking and astounding and irreverent and disrespectful and dishonoring as this son's actions were. We are exactly the same every time that we squander the grace and mercy given to us by our Father through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, when we take the life that He gave His life to give us and we say, not yours, mine. And I'm going to live it for myself however I want. Thank you very much. Every time we willingly choose sin over righteousness, Every time we choose to honor and exalt self over him, we are this younger son. We're, we're, we're exactly that. So be very careful. Well, moving on in the text. 
Look with me at verses 14 to 16, and as we look at that, we're going to see a very dangerous progression. A dangerous progression. Verses 14 through 16. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, assumedly a a Gentile here, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. See why I said probably a Gentile? Sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he, the son, longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything, not even pig pods. (laughs) That's how low he has come. And I want you to see this dangerous progression that is on display in this character of the story. We see, first of all, selfishness. I mean, you see that, right? Selfishness. He was so consumed with self. I mean, that's why he went to the Father and asked what he did. Give me, give me what's coming to me. Give me the inheritance now. I don't want to wait till you're gone. I want it now. Selfishness. Instead of being content and thankful and humble. And that's what selfishness is. It's, we, are, we are selfish any time that instead of, of being content and thankful and humble, that we are, we're just so occupied with ourselves and we want what's coming to us and we think we are entitled, I need this, I deserve this, I'm owed this selfishness. And that leads, selfishness leads to foolishness, which is a result of taking our focus off God and not seeing not seeking Him alone. That's what foolishness is. It's, it's taking our focus off God and not seeking Him, who is the source of wisdom, by the way. God is the source of wisdom. So if our focus is off of God, if we're not seeking Him, the source of wisdom, then that leaves us with foolishness. So selfishness leads to foolishness, which then leads to emptiness. And that's where we see this younger son right now, right here. He goes off. He squanders his inheritance. It doesn't take him that long, apparently. He's left with nothing. And he goes to work, of all places, a pig farm where he's feeding pigs, a Jewish person that, based on just a few details that are are present in the story that Jesus is telling, this is a son, a Jewish son, that lived pretty well. Like He was, he was not a, a poor Jewish son. This family was probably, most likely, a family of pretty significant means. So he was a Jew, working around pigs, feeding pigs, totally destitute, and actually wanting to eat what he's feeding them. I mean, you don't get much lower than that as a Jewish person in that culture, especially someone that had obvious wealth and provision. He's feeding pigs, the ultimate unclean thing, something that no proper Jewish person would have ever had anything to do with. Pigs and all they represented were detestable. And now no longer is he around pigs, which didn't happen. He's feeding them and wanting to eat what he feeds them. 
That's rock bottom. That's emptiness, which was a result of his foolishness, which came as a direct result of his selfishness. And that is always the progression. Church, we've got to be aware of that. Selfishness will always lead to foolishness, and then foolishness, if not dealt with and turned away from, will always end up with emptiness. And here's what else we see. Here's the other thing that this fictional younger son teaches us and shows us. It's this. Sin promises freedom, but produces slavery. And it always does, and it always will. Sin promises freedom. Oh, you're holding yourself back by not doing this or being this. You're holding yourself back. I mean, it goes all the way back to the garden with with the serpent tempting Eve. No, no, no. You won't surely die. Oh, you poor, poor thing. God's just holding you back. He knows that if you eat of this, that He's this thing he's forbidding you to, you'll be like him. And he's too insecure. He doesn't want that to happen. Unleash freedom. Live your best life now. Go ahead, take a bite. And it's the same lie all the way down through every age and every scenario. Go ahead and do this thing. This thing you call sin? No, it's freedom. And so we embrace it, we indulge it, and then we find ourselves shackled by it every time. And that's certainly what this younger son experienced. He thought he was getting freedom, but instead he got the exact opposite. Well, thankfully, the story does not end there. What a sad note that would have been, right, to end there. doesn't end there. And in verses 17 through 19, I want to draw your attention to that. Verses 17 through 19, we're going to see the right kind of woke. The right kind of woke. Let's look at verse 17 together. When he came to his senses, or when he woke up, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers, there's another detail that denotes some prominence there, some wealth, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am, dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, so he's rehearsing the speech now, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers workers. 1 John 1.8 tells us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That was the way the younger son in this story uh, was obviously going about things. He was living that way. He was self-deceived. I'm good. I'm free. I'm not, I've not done anything wrong. I, I seized my own destiny. I took the reins of my life. No one's going to decide for me what I'm going to do and what I'm going to be. Freedom! He was deceived. And had he continued to go about things that way, then, then he would have absolutely been one that was continuing to deceive himself and have 
one who had no truth whatsoever in him. But thankfully, this character in this story didn't do that. I mean, Jesus has him waking up, realizing what he was doing. And in what he's prepared to say to his father when he goes back, and, and as we'll see next week when we continue on, he t- says exactly that. What the younger brother actually demonstrates is what David wrote about in Psalm 51. Psalm 51, verses 3 through 4, he penned this after his own incredibly astounding, shocking, prodigal way of living and sin. He said, I know my transgressions. I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. See, that's acceptance. It's acceptance. I'm accepting the reality of the situation. I am accepting what is true about me. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. I'm not trying to ignore it. I'm not sweeping it under a rug. I'm not hiding it. I am aware of it. I'm accepting my sin. And he continues, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Sounds pretty familiar to what we just read, right? So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That's acknowledgement. It's acknowledging, I have not, not just am I I'm a sinner, I, I'm not just accepting the fact that I'm a sinner, I'm acknowledging that I'm a sinner against you. And both of those things together, acceptance and acknowledgement, that's what sincere confession is all about. And you can't have sincere confession without acceptance and acknowledgement. Accepting what I have done is sin and acknowledging that it's a sin against God. That's sincere confession. And it's what we see beautifully demonstrated here in this change of heart in this younger son. Well, what does that mean for us? What is the challenge for us? What is, what is that lesson that we are to learn from this? Well, we hear an awful lot about woke now, right? I mean, oh my goodness. It's just everywhere. Being woke, staying woke, woke culture. And the irony there is that the very thing that they are suggesting means being woke is quite the opposite, right? I mean, all logic and all reason completely gone. Let's just fall asleep to logic. Let's fall asleep to reason so that we can be woke. Hmm. Well, I'm not going to get into all of that. That's another message entirely. Another series entirely. Let me just say this, to borrow from what is definitely a, uh, you know, buzzword and a trend right now. The kind of woke we need is to be a church that wakes up from our spiritual slumber and apathy. That's what we need. That's the kind of woke we need. To be a church that wakes up and stays awake from our spiritual slumber and apathy. Because that is so, so easy to to have and to be and to not deal with. Spiritual slumber, spiritual apathy. Just floating along, you know, not dealing with sin, not addressing it, not, not accepting 
the areas that are sinful in our lives and acknowledging how serious that is and then repenting from it, not calling out sin where it needs to be called out, not loving the unlovely, not forgiving when we need to, not seeking God with all of our heart. It is so easy to be lulled to sleep, isn't it? So the kind of woke we need is to do the opposite, to wake up from all forms of spiritual slumber, all forms of spiritual apathy. That's what is needed. That's what is needed. So we can actually take a cue from this younger son in this story because he didn't stay asleep. He woke up. And we should do likewise. We need to do likewise. Well, next week we'll pick up in verse 20. And we'll see what the father's response was to this incredible change of heart from the younger son. And we'll see what else we can mine, what else we can dig up in terms of that truth treasure that Jesus has for us. Sound good? All right, let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for giving us this this preservation of of what is just such a fantastic story told by your Son, our Savior. Father, help us to see ourselves accurately. Let this, this parable and what prodigal really means, let it act as a mirror for us. Please, by your Spirit, shed light on our own hearts and help us to see ourselves in this This prodigal son. Help us to see the areas in our own life where we are being reckless with all that you have given us, where we are wasting all that you have given for us and done for us. Give us the ability to see where we are squandering what you have so richly provided. Give us the spiritual eyes to see when and how and where we are loving lesser things. And help us to repent of that so that we don't love you less and start to doubt your goodness more. Father, do the work of application, please, by your Spirit. However it needs to be applied to us individually, please do that now, I pray. Thank you for your working in us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.